Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 175 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Lime Literate Lawyer, an interview with Paola Leichter Esquire. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, this is a really powerful podcast for me personally, as uh, someone who went through law school and had to deal with the rigors of going through law school and then watching a child go through law school. It's amazing to me that this young woman is able to get through law school and then a graduate law school program while suffering from chronic Lyme disease. And Rich, Powell had three really important tips among many others she gave us throughout this podcast episode. The first of which is she discussed Lyme rage and tips to manage Lyme rage while you're really sick. She also talked to us about how she thought she was going to die at one point, and now she's such an inspiration that she's living her life again. Lastly, she talked to us about parasites and how to treat parasites along with Lyme disease. Now, one of the most powerful things that this young woman said to me was that law school, the bar exam for New Jersey, and the bar exam for New York were simple compared to Lyme disease. So it really gives me some insight into how powerful an experience this Lyme journey has been for her. So Matt, without further ado, the Lyme Literate Lawyer. Hey, Paolo, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, really excited. And look, Paolo, I'm, I'm excited to have you on the podcast for a lot of different reasons. The most important of which is I don't generally get to interview many fellow lawyers. So fellow attorney, welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So Paolo, uh, I, I think it's important for our folks to learn a little bit about you. Uh, I understand you're a Jersey gal, so that's another thing that has us excited. Uh, you know, many people we interview do not speak like us, uh, and <laughs> you'll be able to butcher the English language along with us. So Paolo, talk to us about what your experience was like growing up in New Jersey, and talk to us a little bit about what you were dreaming about during your childhood. Sure. So, I mean, I, I had a pretty normal childhood. I have one younger sibling um, who actually does have uh, something called velocardiofacial syndrome, VCFS for short. Um, so he has some special needs. Um, but, you know, it, it just growing up, we grew up with two parents in a home, going to school. Um, we actually were not very outdoorsy. Um, so, you know, just very into movies, hanging out with friends, um, family time, um, a pretty, pretty normal childhood. So Paul, I understand that your dad is a doctor and your mom's a nurse. So talk to us about what it was like to grow up in, uh, you know, in a household with these medical professionals and tell us about why you turned left and became a lawyer rather than a doctor. <laughs> yeah, much, much to my father's uh, disappointment. I did not go to medical school. Um, I, I went to the legal profession, but it, you know, it, it was very interesting. I, I didn't grow up any other way. So I, what do I know? But it growing up with, um, a father for a doctor and a mother for a nurse, um, I feel like maybe you're, you're more aware of germs and, and things that could happen. So, um, you know, you're, you're talking about sanitation and stuff and <laughs> the importance of washing your hands, you know, covering your mouth when you cough, when you're a kid versus other people, it, it's, it, it was very interesting, but I, I think it also did give me an advantage of being more aware of, of certain things than, than I would have otherwise been. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about germs and bacteria and, uh, parasites, uh, since you were so aware of those things as the daughter of a doctor and a nurse, um, did your parents ever talk to you about ticks and tick diseases? So obviously, as you're aware, um, growing up in the New York, New Jersey area, we're, we're taught from a very early age, you know, there's ticks, ticks come from deer, 
Um, when you go outside hiking or spending a lot of time outdoors, you wanna make sure that you look for ticks. Um, if you see a bullseye rash, you wanna make sure that you call your doctor and you speak with them about it so that you can be treated and potentially avoid getting something called Lyme disease. So growing up, hearing that same thing over and over again, and also hearing about Lyme disease specifically, um, for the most part, being something involving arthritis, painful joints, swollen joints, that's, that's what I grew up knowing Lyme disease to be and some of the things to look out for in order to avoid it. All right. So you were generally aware of Lyme disease and you were aware that it was something that uh, you should avoid. Um, yes. What steps did you and your family take to protect yourself from coming in contact with ticks and preventing yourself from getting Lyme disease? We did not go hiking. <laughs> we did not go camping. And, you know, we, we thought by um, looking for ticks, um, you know, we, we were doing our due diligence. Um, you know, if we, we saw deer in the backyard, be okay, there's some deer in the backyard, just kind of be aware if you go outside and in, in flip flops or sandals, check yourself, make sure nothing's crawling on you. Um, and you should be fine. I mean, we're, we're not, we're not going hiking in the woods. We're not going camping, spending a lot of time in the wilderness, very, um, brushy areas. So you should be fine. So largely your family's plan to avoid Lyme disease and ticks was to essentially avoid nature and avoid spending time outside. But, you know, we don't want to foreshadow too much of the story at this point, but doesn't sound like that worked out for you. No, unfortunately it did not. I mean, I should preface by saying that that's not why we did it, but we, we just are naturally not, you know, we figured two birds, one stone, we're not into going hiking, camping and whatnot. So, you know, it, it works in our favor that, that did not turn out to be the case, unfortunately. So let's focus on that for a minute, because one of the things that we at Tick Bootcamp find a little frustrating is that most of the tick check advice that you get from, you know, folks in this community is, if you go hiking, you should be checking for ticks. Now, of course, that's really bad advice because we know that 75% of the people that suffer from Lyme disease get Lyme disease from ticks in their own yard. So yeah. we know that the advice that we're getting, including from the CDC, is not good advice because doing a tick check is not something that should happen only when you're in nature, but it's something you have to do all the time and it has to be part of your grooming um, Part of, part of your daily grooming and your regularly regular regular life. But we're going to talk about that a little bit more, Paolo. So let's move forward. So you, uh, you, you take a left turn and you do not uh, discover a passion for medicine, but you decide that you want to go to law school. So talk to us about, talk to us about your college experience and talk to us about, uh, about the pursuit of uh, your pursuit of the practice of law. Sure. So um, I went to uh, Drew university in New Jersey um, Ironically, called the known as the forest. We, we get lot, lot, lots of lots of deer. The foreshadowing again, but uh, it was great. It was good for me because um, I had never really been away from home before. Um, it wasn't too far from my my home, so I could still be close with my family, but have the college experience. Uh, so I went there. I majored in psychology, minored in English. Um, I, I say that I, I double minored, but I was short a couple of classes in poli sci because I was interested in, in the legal profession, obviously. <laughs> um, but it, it, it was great. It was great um, up until my senior year, towards the end of my senior year, I actually, that's when I started having some of my symptoms come out. I didn't know then, but we can get into that later. No, but let's talk about that now. So so you're, you're, you're having a... a 
traditional and typical college experience. You're right. majoring in psychology. You're majoring, you know, almost double minoring in 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 poli sci and in, and in English. And you're you know, you're building up the foundation to go to law school. And now you start to have symptoms interfere with your work. Talk to us about the symptoms and how that was impacting your educational experience. So at that point in time, I was I was in my senior year. Um, and it was actually very close to graduation. I remember because uh, we had something called, um, we, we had a prom essentially for the seniors, you know, in college, but it was, it was nice because I actually didn't go to my high school prom. So it was, it was very, it was nice. But um, so I, I went with a bunch of friends who we were having a great time and I started to feel really sick um, randomly. Um, I started feeling really nauseous. I felt like I was going to be sick. Um, so I, I left with my friends, went back to my dorm and one of my friends at the time, she was actually, um, working as, um, an, an EMT. Um, she, she's now a doctor. Um, but she was kind enough to stay with me in my dorm room. I had called my parents telling them I, I wasn't feeling well. And I started to get physically sick um, and have full body tremors. It looked like to me, it looked like I was having a seizure, but I was with it. I, I never lost consciousness. Um, and when my dad came, my dad came to get me. Um, he was concerned that maybe somebody had, had spiked a drink that I had had. That that's how severe it was. Um, and you know, I growing up as female, you know, it happens to, to men and women, but, you know, I was taught at a very young age, never leave your drink alone, never. So, and, and I wasn't drinking alcohol. I had been just drinking soda, water. I'm, I'm a lightweight, so <laughs> I never really drank anyway. But um, so we ruled that out. He took me home. I had a, maybe a slight fever. So we figured I had a bug. Um, and that was fine. It passed. It was weird. But what was odd about it was that it kept happening after that. I would have maybe every once a week or um, every other week, these episodes where I would feel like I was gonna be physically ill and my whole body would start to have these shakes. Like I was having a seizure, teeth chattering, whole body jerking, no control over it. So what the heck's wrong with me? oh, I must be anxious because college is ending and now I've been accepted into law school. So I must be stressed out just preparing for that next chapter in my life. So we, we just brushed it off to, well, you know, maybe you had a bug and now maybe you're just having anxiety about, about what's to come after college. So now just before these symptoms began to develop, um, do you have any reason to believe that you were that you had come in contact with a tick? So I like I, I said, I, I never saw a tick. I have, however, and I do remember while I was in college, seeing different bites that I would ask my parents about saying, does this look like a bullseye to you? It doesn't, you know, I, I don't see a center, but it looks kind of suspicious. So my parents would look at it and they'd say, you know, it, it, just keep an eye on it. If it, if it develops into something else, we'll take you to the doctor. We'll take you to primary care physician and, and we'll go from there. But, you know, um, at least in my situation at that point in time, um, nothing really developed into what we know as a, a full bullseye rash. And what was the, the, the 
time distance between when you saw this sort of rashy, different bug bite experience and when you started having these tremors? Well, here's the thing. I had noticed them throughout throughout my college experience. So I don't really have a, a specific, you know, I was walking to class and, and then, you know, I noticed this bite. I just, I would get a bite and be like, oh, it's not a bullseye rash. Okay, you know, it, it must be a mosquito. But now we know maybe mosquitoes can transmit Lyme disease as well. Lot, lots of different little critters. Um, but there was no real, um, uh, no real specific spot in time during, during that time period where I could correlate when a bite might've happened and these symptoms occurring. But Paula, what I'm, what I'm sort of asking you is you were reporting to your medical professional parents that you were yeah. getting these bites and you were getting rashes and they were recommending that you keep an eye on them. And then right. within a couple of years, at least of, yeah. of reporting this from your experiences at Drew University, that uh, you start to have these tremors. Is there any, right. any thought that there, there may have been a connection between you reporting to these medical professionals that you have these these rashy bites and uh, and these new tremors that you're beginning to suffer during your senior year in college? At that point in time, no, no. And okay. spe specifically because I never had a, a full bullseye rash. You know, I never saw a tick, never had a bullseye, a, a classical bullseye rash. Right. Um, so what can't, it, it can't be related. So. so now let's, let's take the next step, right? So you're now, uh, you've graduated from college, you're yeah. getting ready to be, begin your law school experience. It is really stressful, right? Starting law school is a really stressful experience. <laughs> First year of law school is a very stressful experience, right? Yes, yes. Uh, and, and you're now getting sicker and sicker, right? Talk to us about how your symptoms are developing mm -hmm. and talk to us about whether or not you believe the stressors of your first year law school experience expedited the, uh, the development of your Lyme disease. Sure. So at that point in time, you know, my, my main symptom, at least immediately before starting law school was that, you know, feelings, random bouts of feeling sick and the, the full body tremors. Um, when I actually started law school that following fall, um, I noticed that I started developing a lot of food intolerances that I had not previously had. Did not connect it again with with the full body tremors. Just figured, you know, I'm I'm a year older. Your body changes as you get older. Just can't eat this stuff anymore. All the while, still sporadically having these body tremors. I would actually um, sometimes in between classes, sometimes at the end of the day, when I I should explain, um, there was an option to live. Um, on campus where I went to, to law school, we we shared <laughs> apartments, dormitory, I don't, I don't know what you would call it, but um, we shared it, the law students, the pharmacy students um, at the pharmacy school, as well as the medical students at, at the, over at the hospital. So in between my classes or at the end of classes, at the end of the day, sometimes I would get these body tremors and I would actually lock myself in my room pretending that I was taking a nap so that my roommates, we had, um, you were either in a double or you were in a quad so that my roommates would not see this happening to me because I was embarrassed. I, I here I am, I think that I'm having, you know, anxiety attacks, um, even though I'm not anxious. 
um, and I'm I'm sitting on the floor in my bedroom having these full body tremors, just just trying to get my body to stop shaking. So those were the two things that I was primarily um, working against while I was in law school. I was still pretty stable that even though that sounds bizarre to be stable with body tremors, um, but I was, I was able to go to class. I was able to take my exams. I was able to socialize and I didn't feel sick. Again, it sounds weird saying that you're having full body tremors, you're having food intolerances. Um, but otherwise it, it wasn't like it was every single day. It wasn't like it was preventing me from going to class at that point, at that point in time, interfering with my day-to-day um, -day living. So I just figured there's, it's, it's a mental thing. It's an anxiety thing for whatever reason, I don't have control over it and I'm not anxious, but just, you got to work through it. So now I recall that you were a psychology major in college. Yes. And do you believe that you were essentially just trying to grit your way through this physical challenge by describing it as, as an emotional challenge just so you can get through law school or was there something else going on? I think it was a combination. I think that, you know, on the one hand, um, I had seen my, my doctor, my primary care physician, um, my blood work was normal. Um, everything came back normal. I was, I was a healthy person. Um, so if none of my testing is coming back, my, my medical testing, diagnostic testing is coming back, to show that something is wrong with me physically um, to be causing these symptoms, it must be psychological. So you really start to, well, what, what am I doing to cause this? I, I need to, if, if it's psychological, I just need to relax. I need to be more Zen. I need to just, if I'm feeling stressed, try and take some time to myself and calm down. So I, I think that on the one hand, the, the psychological, um, the, the psychological component of it, it was a double-edged sword in that it, it did get me to kind of focus on um, techniques that would help, um, you know, calm me down um, in stressful situations. But at the same time, it wasn't addressing the actual issue, the root cause of what, what was causing my body to function like this. Well, it was also allowing you to ignore the physical symptomology or at least ignore the explanation rather than sort of putting together all of these different pieces of this experience and coming to a conclusion, you were sort of isolating. I had this rash at one time, I was having these symptoms. I'm beginning to have allergic reactions, you know, and, and, and have food intolerance. Oh, I'm having these emotional, you know, the, these emotional challenges and rather than cobbling them all together, they all, they all became, explain to you and I guess to your, your medical professional uh, family members, right. you know, just stresses or normal responses to stresses associated with making these, these professional transitions. So um, talk to us about now graduating from law school and going on to your law school graduate program <laughs> and how your, um, how your health was uh, challenging you there. Sure. So again, in my mind, fortunately, um, 
I, at that point in time, I was still having the same issues, the body tremors and the food intolerances. Although at that point in time, I was noticing slightly more um, digestive issues. Um, I, I felt like I was not necessarily digesting my food as well after eating, but again, um, getting older, um, your body. Yeah, changes. you're 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 all of what? 23? <laughs> no, I I'm, I'm I'm actually God bless you. I'm I'm turning 36 in July. So well, but, but at that time, I mean at the time you're saying I'm at, Oh, at older, that at that time? I mean, how old? Yeah, are you? at that time I was probably um I was I was actually in my late late 20s. Late 20s at that time. Late 20s, almost 30s. Um but yeah, but but you know, your your body's always changing. So why not? It it's <laughs> so you now graduate from your graduate school program. So you've yes. gone through college with Lyme disease. You've gone through law school through, uh, with Lyme disease. You've now gone through a graduate law program at another major university yeah. with Lyme disease. And now you move on and you do a uh, judicial internship. Talk to us about that and talk to us about the impact that your health was having on the successes you were seeking to achieve with this uh, judicial internship. So I moved back home to New Jersey, um, living um, with my family to save money, law school loans, you know, gotta, gotta love them. Um, but so I'm, I'm living at home with my, my family and um, I was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to work at a local surrogate court. And um, I got a, an unpaid internship um, with the deputy surrogate getting to work in the surrogate court. And it was an amazing experience. Um, I, again, I was at that point in time able to still function pretty normally, minus the occasional body tremors and digestive issues. However, um, so I, I worked there for about a year and a half. So a year, I was, I was okay. Towards the end of the internship, I had been interviewing for my first real legal job. It was very exciting. Um, I had been accepted by a boutique law firm um, in the area to work in their trust and estates department. So I was very excited. And it was around this time in, I think it was 2016, that I started to feel really sick. Um, and it, it was like I had developed a, a stomach bug or G GI bug that just would not go away. Um, and I remember specifically saying to my parents, I feel like maybe, maybe I, ha I have food poisoning. Maybe I ate something that was bad. Something's not right. My gut does not feel right. So that's when things really started to, to do a 180. So you're now, you're, you've now taken two bar exams. You're now getting ready to work at this boutique firm. You're ready to do everything that you had prepared yourself for. And now you're getting sicker and sicker and sicker. So talk to us about how your your digestive issues started to develop and talk to us about how that impacted um, you know your capacity to be the, the successful young lawyer you had worked so hard to become. Sure. So um, I remember because it was um, I had just turned 31 at this point in time. Um, and my gut was bothering me. And um, one afternoon, I think it was a weekend maybe because I was home and um, both my parents were home. So they, you know, my dad wasn't at work. Not that that's important. Anyway, um, I started having really severe lower right 
abdominal pain. And it was to the point where I could not stand up straight. So growing up in a medical family, my first thought is, oh my God, I'm having an episode of appendicitis. I can't jump. I can't stand up straight. I'm in excruciating pain. I feel like I'm going to be sick. Um, I, I need to go to the hospital. My dad takes me to the hospital. They evaluate me. They do, um, I think they do a, um, either an MRI or a CAT scan with and without contrast. They do an ultrasound. Everything's fine. They tell me to eat more fiber and go home. You're, you're fine. Um, okay. I'm fine. The pain goes away. I don't really think about it. I, I go back to my internship, but my gut is still, I start having really weird gut pain. Um, I'm eating things that I normally eat, but I'm, I'm, I'm feeling sick trying to eat them. Um, I had this gnawing pain in my stomach that just would not go away. And I would tell my parents, I, I think that I, I think I caught a bug or I think I ate something bad. And, you know, they, they said to me, well, just watch it. We'll see if you feel better. Um, so all of this is going on. Um, I'm accepted um, at this boutique law firm, my first real job, but the stomach aches are not going away. And I start getting this really weird pinching in my ribs, um, which is the only way I can describe it. I've never had this before. I feel like something is actually pinching me in different spots of my ribs. And my parents are looking at me like, what the heck are you talking about? What, maybe you're B12 deficient. Take some, I, I had had issues with being vitamin B12 and, and D3 um, deficient previously. Make sure you're taking your supplements, you know, see if it goes away. Just, just keep watching it. Doesn't go away. I start working at the law firm um, and this is from um, fall of 2016 to about March of 2017. I'm having to leave work early because I'm getting chest pain to the point where um, I feel like, am I having a heart attack? What, why am I having such severe chest pain? Um, another time I had to leave because my back was killing me. Uh, I felt like somebody had kicked me in the back. I had to get evaluated for kidney stones. Um, no kidney stones, everything normal, chest pain, EKG, echocardiogram, everything normal. Um, and meanwhile, I'm not able to eat um, normally. I'm, I'm skipping meals. I'm not eating as much. And I start getting nausea, hypersalivation, to the point where this is gross and I'm, I'm <laughs> probably oversharing, but I, again, I think it's important for people to know who think that they're having these symptoms and they think it's in their head. It's not so much spit in your mouth to the point where I'm having to spit it out. And I'm like, why, what the heck is this? This is not anxiety. I'm, I'm not making this happen. Um, feeling so sick to the point where I can no longer drive to and from work. And um, I, I had to ultimately leave my job. I became um, bed bound because I, I was nauseated to the point where um, I was walking around with a garbage bag in front of my face 24 um, seven, just mind boggling as to what the heck happened to me. It was, it, it seemed like it was very insidious the way that it, it started. And once my symptoms reached that point, it was like the point of no return. I, I had no idea what was wrong with me. I, I saw up to um, 30 or more doctors 
um, predominantly GI because like I said, my symptoms aside from the body shaking were predominantly GI related. Um, and nobody had any answers for me. Paula, you were, you were having pretty much classic Lyme symptoms. Every symptom you just described, we have heard by another guest, many of which I've had myself. Mm -hmm. And at this point, prior to this, was Lyme disease ever on the table? And if so, was it ever really seriously considered at all? No, no. Um, you know, what's interesting is, um, I, like I said, all of my test results came back normal. I don't remember who ordered the first, I, I was tested for Lyme disease at some point. I think it might've been because I was so desperate. You know, I said to my dad, dad, can you just, I, this is bizarre. I was a healthy person, normal, able to live a productive life. Can you just run this? Because I mean, it, people have said, I, I had heard people say, you know, I got Lyme disease and I was completely debilitated. But again, it, it was more so with people I had heard had joint pain, it hurt to walk, um, swollen joints. I, I, I somehow had a, um, uh, like a quest or lab core, um, Lyme test run. And I had one band come back. It was band 41 on the, I think it was IgM that they have the IgG IgM. So I had one, one band come back. So it's an, it's a negative test result. I didn't know at that point in time that the tests are highly inaccurate and that if you have even one band, it's worth investigating and that, you know, if you suspect it, it's helpful to go on antibiotic treatment to, I believe the term is blebbing, um, or I don't know if there's multiple terms for it, but if you go, apparently if you go on antibiotic treatment and you're suspected of Lyme disease, the antibiotics, I hope I'm explaining this correctly, the antibiotics help your body to make more antibodies that the test will be able to pick up if you are infected with a caveat, infected with the um, strain that they are testing for because that also is an issue. You think that you're being tested for all of these different strains of Lyme disease and you're not. Um, so at that point in time, I had, I, I did have one or two Lyme tests done and they consistently came back with just band 41. Um, so I was told, eh, you probably just have something. We don't know what that made the band light up and it's only one band. So, you know, you don't have Lyme disease. But that, it, it also seems like your symptoms, you're sort of narrowing down your symptoms to being primarily GI, which I understand that was probably the most prominent symptoms, but you also mentioned that you did have chest pain. You had yes. obviously your torso twitching, you had back pain. Yes. Uh, you also mentioned in your pre-interview questionnaire, you had tinnitus at this time also and issues with your hearing and your ears. So yes. there were other symptoms that weren't consistent with GI related issues. So what right. was your what were your parents thinking at this point as, as a doctor and a nurse, your dad and your mom, what were they thinking when your symptoms were caused from? Were they still thinking maybe this is psychological? Because it sounds like you were leaning towards psychological and then you started to pivot away from that to say, hey, this is something more than just emotional psychological issues here. Right. So um, I, sh I should add that the, the, the tinnitus um, started in, um, it was 2019. I, I slowly from 2017 into 2019 started getting more and more neurological issues. Like you said, the tinnitus, I would have bouts of rage, which was bizarre. And again, made me think that something psychological was going on. Are, am I just frustrated with feeling sick and I'm acting out in rage because of what I'm going through? 
very, very confusing. Um, but the my parents were very concerned because they know me, obviously. Um, I, I never had any health issues before this, um, always healthy. And they're watching me um, after having gone to, you know, school, college, law school, grad school, two bars, getting a job and just watching me deteriorate before their eyes. I, I've always been a very um, naturally skinny person. Um, it got to the point where I was 90 pounds. Um, I looked like a skeleton. My parents were freaking out. I, I was having to, um, I was having to like uh, bobby pin my clothes, my pants so that they would stay up. It, it was, it was disgusting. And then of course, when you go to see physicians and they see you like that, they, oh, you must have an eating disorder. You, have you ever had an eating disorder? I was like, I, I want to eat. I used to eat a pack of cookies a day. What? <laughs> just want to be able to eat again. Um, so it, it was very frustrating and, um, very difficult to get doctors to take me seriously. Um, and it was also very difficult to have anyone even consider the, the Lyme disease, um, diagnosis, um, as a possible explanation, um, just because as you're both aware, the, the medical community is just so split on how to handle it and how to evaluate it, how to test for it. Um, so that it was, it was just horrible. So uh, before we get into the, the emotional changes and the neurological symptoms that you experienced while you were pretty much bedbound for those three years, right. at this point, it sounds like I just want to understand where your head was at and where your family's heads were at you were leaning more towards there's something physically wrong with me, but you were just so sick. You probably really couldn't advocate for yourself. Is that, is that correct? Oh, that's a hundred percent correct. I, you know, I, I went from being able to, to be an attorney, to, to advocate for other people, to just being completely not with the program um, emotionally and, and just physically drained from feeling sick 24 seven. I couldn't stand up straight. I couldn't walk. Um, I taking a shower, um, brushing my hair, I would have to take, I, I would have to take breaks after that because I was so physically exhausted. So I'm sorry to interrupt there, but that's something that's very common. And, and I've experienced that as well. And it's hard for people to understand that having suffered from chronic Lyme disease or chronic illness, just the act of showering can be yeah. exhausting. So can you share with us just like, explain that to us in more detail for people that don't understand what that's like. Why would an act like showering cause you to be just exhausted and not have to rest for an entire day? Give us, give us like an, an example of what that was like for you. Sure. So my personal experience with that was so again, at that point in time, um, I should add in, in addition to the, the nausea and feeling like I was going to be sick and not being able to eat, I was having severe, um, almost like muscular pain, um, from my, I'm going to use medical terms. So I'm sorry that like, almost like my ascending transverse and descending colon. So what does that mean though, for those of us that don't understand? So I, I don't I know what that means. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tilt you down this way. So it's like from your lower right abdomen all the way up to under your right rib cage, across your the top of your abdomen, and then down to your lower left abdomen. Um, it felt like that whole area on me was like stiff as a board. It was like, I, I could not bend. Um, I was, it was excruciating. I was walking like a hunchback just, just to even get up and go shower. So 
I'm having to mentally give myself pep talks to get up, roll over onto my side, sit up in my bed, get up, walk to the bathroom and just shower and like mentally tell myself, you can do this. You know, you, you can get through a shower at like 32, 33 years of age at that point in time, um, get out with my hair still wet, get somehow get dressed and just lay down in bed for like two hours after that, because it was mentally and physically exhausting and excruciating. So Paola, talk to us more now about where your parents' heads were at. So we know you knew something was wrong, but you were so sick, you really couldn't fight for yourself at this point. Were your parents really leaning towards it was a psychological illness still, and they were trying to get you help in that regard, or were they looking more towards a physical uh, diagnosis rather than a mental health diagnosis? No, at, at that point in time, when, when I was unable to continue working, that was in um, back in 2017, um, they, they knew they believed me that something was physically wrong with me, but they just didn't know what. So they, they were on board with something has happened to her. She's either been, she's been infected with something or something's going on in her body that needs to be addressed. Um, but they, because of the predominantly, at least initially predominantly GI issues, I was going to all these gastroenterologists and they were all saying the same thing. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, I did end up um, towards the end of, I think it was towards the end of 2017, one gastroenterologist did diagnose me with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So at that point in time, I was, it, it sounds messed up, but you're so excited to have some type of diagnosis. Okay, this is what's going on. I have the name of something. Now I can make a plan of attack on, on what to do. The issue for me was that that was not my root cause. So I had actually, I, I had an issue with the antibiotics. I ended up doing an herbal protocol for SIBO, um, SIBO. I know people pronounce it differently, um, but I did an herbal protocol and through the lactulose um, breath test was able to determine that I had gotten rid of the, the SIBO, um, but none of my symptoms changed. So I really started freaking out at that point because I said, well, this was the diagnosis. I don't feel any different. Why didn't, why didn't it help? What's going on? And what were your doctors saying to you at that point? Because now they diagnosed you with SIBO or SIBO and, and you think that you think that's what's causing your symptoms. You now get rid of it. You're still sick. Yeah. What are your doctors saying? They're, they're thinking that I'm just, I'm unhappy in my job, that I'm attention seeking um, and that I need to talk to a therapist. So now pivoted back to psychological because the one physical condition they found that they treated didn't get you better. Correct. And that's very common where people in the Lyme community, even when they get diagnosed with Lyme disease, they get treated for Lyme. If they're not better, then they're told they're crazy. Even though they had a Lyme diagnosis, they got treated maybe for two or three weeks and then they're told they're crazy. So that's very consistent with what we've heard in other stories. Right. So I do want to come back to the Lyme rage and the emotional components of Lyme disease. So if you can explain for our listeners did you have anger or temper issues prior to getting sick with Lyme disease? And, and if so, how is Lyme rage different than just normal anger and rage that you would have without Lyme disease? Sure. So uh, no, I never had any, any anger issues, any rage issues prior to this. Um, and that's what made it so scary, especially for my, um, for my family members. Um, I, I'm known by friends and family as being very, um, 
very friendly, very nice. Um, you know, I'll if see somebody who needs the door held open, I'll hold it open for them. You know, it just very no 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 rage issues. Um, when this started getting really bad, um, I would have a very short temper. Um, you know, things would set me off like um, noises. I became very noise sensitive um, and just little stupid things would set me off. Um, and I could recognize that something was not right. Um, but I, again, I was just thinking, well, I just must be in a bad mood. Um, but what I've noticed um, since my diagnosis, um, I've been able to pay more attention to this. It doesn't happen as often. It still happens once in a while. Um, but it's almost like something in my head I feel something in my head and I've, I've described it to my parents and my, my Lyme doctor as almost like there's no word for it. So I apologize, but it's like, my head feels like this, like there's the sensation in my head. I'm sure everybody's different. I know shaking your head with shaking your hands is not, you know, very explanatory, but when, when you're, when you are um, feeling something that you've never felt before and other people have never felt it. Like, how, how do you go about describing that? Um, I, I would have this physical sensation in my head of just something going on and I would lose my patience um, to just demonstrate the severity. Again, embarrassing, probably too much information, but in, in the, um, in the uh, hopes of helping anybody who may be listening and going through this, um, I got so frustrated with my younger brother, um, at one point that I picked up his laptop and I threw it across the room. Um, I've never acted like that before. Um, I'm embarrassed about it. I was embarrassed about it after I did it. Um, thankfully the laptop did not break. Um, but, and it was over stupid stuff. It, it was, it was very scary. And, and that sticks out in my mind because that just demonstrated to me and also to my family that something was not right. Um, this, this was not typical behavior of me. Um, this, something was wrong with me, seriously wrong with me. Paula, were there any, any triggers, what, you know, whether it's, whether it's environmental or food or emotional or stressors or sleep that would bring on Lyme rage for you when you were in the throes of it? Sure. So um, I think the biggest one um, for me was noise. Um, I became very noise sensitive later um, in my illness. Um, I, you know, I would be upstairs in my room with the door shut and I could hear, if I could hear the TV downstairs, my parents and my, my brother just trying to, you know, relax after dealing with me 24 seven, um, and my issues, if I heard the TV downstairs, I would lose it. I'd be like, you have to lower the TV. It's too loud. It's giving me a headache. I can't, I, I can't relax. You have to just very noise sensitive. So let's, let's go on now. So at this point, after treating SIBO, you're now being told by your doctors, you're crazy again. So how did you go from that point to finally landing a Lyme diagnosis shortly after that? Sure. So um, I, I, I have to be completely honest. Um, you know, after first having these more severe symptoms and, and um, being unable to um, 
live a productive life, normal life, whatever you want to call it, um, starting in 2016 all the way to 2019, I thought I was going to die. Um, I was convinced that, um, you know, I was going to go undiagnosed with whatever I had. And one day my parents were going to wake up and I was just going to be dead in my bed um, because nobody had an answer. I was continuously just getting worse, not being able to function, not being able to walk, not being able to take care of myself. Um, and I was really convinced that I was going to just die and they would never have any answers as to what happened to me. Um, <laughs> the, what's weird and, and very fortunate in my case is that I started developing um, tinnitus, really severe tinnitus. Um, and um, it got to the point where I could not hear out of my right ear. Um, so my mom um, was desperately trying to get me in um, to see a local ENT. Um, my, what I, I'm so fortunate um, that the ENT that I, I typically saw was completely booked. Um, and I got, I actually, I'm going to be honest, I got really frustrated with his office because I couldn't hear out of my ear and they had just implemented this new policy, which made no sense to me, where they were going to make me do a hearing test before having the doctor evaluate me when I already couldn't hear out of my ear. I was like, no, I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay for an exam. It's going to tell me that I can't hear when I know I can't hear. I want somebody to look at my ear. So thankfully they, they aggravated me and my mom found somebody like down the road from my house. This, this is where it gets really crazy. Um, so we make the appointment. Um, it takes a couple of days to get in. Um, but that was the quickest that this ENT could see me. And, um, I go, I fill out all this paperwork, same garbage. I had SIBO, I have GI issues, I'm 90 pounds. Just let's get, get me in, have them evaluate my ears and get the heck out. Um, this man, God bless him, um, he saved my life. Um, you know, he walked into, I'll never forget, he walked into the, um, into the, uh, the room and he's looking at my, my paperwork, which, you know, you, you spend all this time filling out the paperwork and you never see the doctors look at it in front of you. You're like, he's actually looking at the paperwork and he's looking at me. And the first thing he says, he's, well, I shouldn't say that. He's asking me a bunch of questions that don't have to, that don't relate to my ear. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I have this. Yeah. I've had that. Yeah. I've experienced that. And he stops and he looks at me and he says, I don't want to scare you but I don't think your doctors are taking you seriously. And I just burst out like ugly crying, sobbing. I, I like, this, this is the first doctor that isn't, you know, my dad, our first medical professional that isn't a, a family member, my mom or my dad, that, that believes me and believes that something serious is going on. And he says to me, I really think that you need to get evaluated for Lyme disease. And I'm like, but I did, I got evaluated. The test came back negative. I had actually gone to a local LLMD um, who told me there's no way I had Lyme. Um, and, and it was because my, my issues were predominantly GI, which is again, mind boggling because you can have GI, you can develop Bell's palsy of the gut from Lyme or co-infections, certain co-infections. Um, so he says, no, you, you have to go get evaluated. This is not going to get better if you don't see somebody who actually understands all of the different aspects of this. 
So he gave me the names of a couple different people um, that I could go try and go see. Um, and I ended up seeing who is now my Lyme doctor. Um, and he explained to me, you know, yeah, you, you've had testing done, but the testing is highly inaccurate. And, um, you know, you do have a band, band 41, which has consistently been popping up. Um, so, um, you know, we'll put you on antibiotics. First time I was ever offered antibiotics. The doctors that I had seen, they had no problem, um, you know, recommending an antidepressant and anti-anxiety, um, you know, all these different medications that you, you have to get off of very slowly because you can have withdrawal, but they would not give me an antibiotic because of fear of antibiotic resistance for, you know, whatever, you know, they, they didn't think it was medically necessary, so I didn't get it. This doctor put me on amoxicillin um, because he felt that it would be um, the the least um, the the least uh, what's the word I'm looking for it, because my gut was so messed up. He was afraid that putting me on a heavy duty um, antibiotic would would mess things up further. So he put me on amoxicillin, which I tolerated very well. And one of the first symptoms that went away was my ringing in my ear. Um, I, I said to my mom, it's gone. I don't, I don't hear the ringing anymore. It's, it's gone. Um, he had me on the antibiotic for, I think it was two weeks. And he had me do another, um, another Lyme test, just, you know, uh, standard lab core quest Lyme test. This time I had two bands. Um, so he said, I, I really think that you, that this is what's, what's the cause of all of your issues. I want you to stand the antibiotic um, for a month, keep track of your symptoms, see if anything gets better, doesn't, um, and we'll test you again in a month. So I did that. I'm slowly being able to, to eat more. I'm slowly being able to get up more, walk around. Uh, in a month when I had retested, I finally had a CDC positive um, Lyme test. So we knew we were on the right track at that point in time. So I can't help but wonder that your parents were both medically trained professionals yeah. and they didn't push the Lyme issue. Is that because they weren't aware of how inaccurate the Lyme tests were and because of the lack of information available to the medical community? Why do you think that your parents weren't more persistent with the Lyme issue as far as knowing how bad the tests are, knowing clinical diagnoses could be possible in a case like yours? Um, was it a lack of education about Lyme disease or, you know, what do you think that was? Well, I should say first, you know, neither of them uh, ever really had firsthand experience. My dad's a, a pediatric cardiologist and, and my mom also predominantly worked with pediatric patients. Um, so there was no, um, clinical, uh, experience regarding Lyme disease, but I definitely do think that it is number one. We all trusted the physicians that I was seeing. You know, they're they're medically trained. They must know what they're doing. They must they must be on um, the up and up with all of the information regarding Lyme and Lyme testing. Um, but that wasn't the case, um, and I I think that there's just so much false information. Um, that is in the medical community that's being taught to medical professionals um, that prevents people like us um, from being timely diagnosed and treated. Um, so it, it's, it's not that they were, um, you know, in any way, shape or form, not believing me or not, um, 
thinking something was wrong with me and that I needed to be treated. They just had no, they had never seen anything like this. They, they did not know that Lyme could do this. And, and every time we brought it up, like, listen, what, is there any way, because I was having, I was, I was using social media and I was just trying to find anybody like me um, that might be able to point me in the right direction. Cause like I said earlier, I really thought I was going to die. Um, and people kept saying, you, you need, you should, you should be tested for Lyme. Well, I was tested and they told me, no, you don't have this. You don't, I, I saw a, a Lyme doctor who said, you, you don't have classical symptoms. So you don't, it wouldn't mess with your gut. It's just, it's just completely, it's completely a mess. The whole situation in what's being taught to medical professionals and in how to properly evaluate and treat people who end up going through this. So Paula, talk to us about what happens next. You're finally feeling better. Now you're getting a CDC positive Lyme test. Mm-hmm. What are your next steps? So um, I stayed on amoxicillin for probably from April of 2019 until August of 2019. And I remember that because I had been bed bound for three and a half years. I went on my first vacation at that point in time. So we were, we were celebrating. Um, I, we, we, my whole family, we went on vacation and lucky we did because then COVID happened later. (laughs) Um, But we, um, we went on vacation to North Carolina and um, I had felt like I had plateaued on the amoxicillin. Um, I, I, I had initially been noticing certain symptoms um, getting better or disappearing while on amoxicillin. And then I felt like I was just taking it and nothing was happening. Um, so, or no, no, I shouldn't say nothing was happening. Nothing, no new symptom, no other symptoms were being addressed. So I spoke with my doctor about it and he switched me from amoxicillin to, I believe it was Suprax. I think that's the name of it. Um, so same thing. I started noticing, you know, slightly more energy, having to take less naps, being able to be more active, being able to stand, actually stand up straight and walk around. Um, it was like, I was slowly getting my life back. Um, from August, 2019 to probably November of 2019, I stayed on Suprax and then finally switched to doxycycline. Um, and I was very excited about that because I was concerned from doing my own research then at that point in time regarding specifically Lyme and different co-infections. I was very concerned that I had Bartonella um, as well, um, specifically because of the body shaking uh, that I had mentioned earlier. Um, that was still going on uh, and was not, it, it was not being addressed. Uh, and I had actually found a, I think it was a YouTube video of a woman who was having the same exact thing. Like it was like looking in a mirror. She was full body shaking, teeth chattering, but being able to talk. I was like, I really think I have Bartonella as well. Um, so I stayed on the doxycycline. Um, I, I continued to slowly get better. Um, and uh, in, I think it was... November of 2020, I did an Igenix uh, PCR test for um, the co-infections and Bartonella, I think the I, IgG came back as being positive. Um, so. so before we go on to the doxycycline part of your journey, I do want to back up a second because to put it into perspective, you, were, you started getting sick when you were 23. You got really, really bad yeah. when you were... Th- 
Oh, well, yeah, technically. I mean, you see, see, I still don't. I, I'm yeah. like, no, I was fine. I was functioning. You had tremors. You're having seizures yeah, in 23. That, that's, that's those symptoms, know. right? <laughs> it sounds messed up, but I don't, I don't consider it sick because I was like, eh, I'm going to go drive around, go get some ice cream. I'm fine. And this is body tremors. It's fine. So, so then at 31, you're, you're pretty much bed bound and you get diagnosed now at 33, almost 34, about a little over 10 years later. So one of the questions that comes to mind is not all Lyme litter doctors are the same. So what was the difference between the first Lyme specialist you saw who dismissed you and your current Lyme litter doctor who took you seriously and treated you and got you the proper treatment you needed to get better? Sure. So I, I think that, I think that, um, the issue, um, might have been that they were specifically focused on, again, um, the, the joint, um, muscle pain, joint swelling aspects of, um, of Lyme disease. And they weren't necessarily up to speed in regards to the other, um, the other, the other issues that Lyme disease could potentially cause, especially neurological um, Lyme issues. Um, so, you know, I, I think because this person was specifically focused on one set of symptoms, that's really what, so I, I, I do encourage people before they go see um, any, anyone who is, um, I should say any physician, but any, especially a, a, someone who's claiming to be a Lyme literate doctor, look at reviews, um, see if they're hyper-focusing on one specific set of symptoms because you might inadvertently um, be, uh, your symptoms might be disregarded um, and it, it could really have a, a worse impact on your, your um, attempts to try and heal later on. Um, but I, I think that that was the biggest thing. I think that they were just hyper-focused on joints, joint swelling and whatnot. And that's, and that's why I was, um, potentially not taken seriously. All right. So Paolo, let's bounce back to when you had your hygienics test. Now you finally had an indicator that you had Bartonella, like you thought, and now you pivoted over to doxycycline. Walk us through what happens next. So again, um, I, I was having improvement in symptoms, slowly getting better, um, I, I got to the point where my doctor thought it would be wise to, um, pulse two weeks on two weeks off of the doxycycline. Um, and I was able to do that. Um, but I, again, felt like I was plateauing on the antibiotics. Um, I just felt like it was, it was keeping me stable in, you know, where I was. And at that point in time, and I should mention in, in, um, October of 2019, I finally felt well enough to, um, to work part-time remotely. Um, so I, I did start working again at that point in time, which was a huge thing for me. Um, and for my family, <laughs> see well, Paolo, that- I, I just want to stop you for a second. You went from being bed bound for three yeah. and a half years yeah. to within a short period of time, being able to work a part-time job and go on a vacation, which is amazing because we have so many people who are bed bound and think they can never get better and never go on vacation and never work. And you are proof that those people can. So I just want to emphasize that. And that's really great accomplishments. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your. No, it's okay. No, it, it was, it was exciting. I, you know, and it, it sounds to, to anybody who hasn't gone through this. Oh, wow. You want a vacation. Look, we do like what you don't, it's, it's a big thing. It, it was a really big thing. And especially because it, it felt like um, confirmation in regards to we're finally addressing what needs to be addressed and there's hope. 
Um, and, and it was, it was really great, but the, the work thing as well was fantastic. I was very fortunate, um, to, um, be able to, um, work in the legal arena again, um, and have a, um, a, a firm that was willing to take a chance on me on being out of the uh, legal field for so long, um, and allow me to have accommodations, um, in regards to, um, working again. So, um, but, but back to the doxycycline, you know, it, it, it did all of those antibiotics. I feel like they were great in, in my case. Um, and they, they did help me up to a certain point. Um, and every time I did feel like I did plateau on them. So, um, I actually ended up getting a, a second opinion, uh, from a Lyme doctor in Connecticut who, um, he ran, he recommended running another blood test. And this time he, um, put on the panel that he wanted certain parasites to be checked for. And one of the parasites was something called strongaloides. And I never heard of this before. I was like, what, what the heck is this? What? And I looked it up and it was this weird parasite that you get from like the tropics, like more, and, and it's primarily, primarily contracted through soil. It can actually infiltrate your body by walking barefoot essentially in, in areas that, that are um, contaminated with it. So I'm like, what the, what the heck is that? I live in New Jersey. What, what the heck? It came back positive. Um, so I, I was really scary um, at that point because in certain people, I, it's, it, it sounds like mostly in um, immune compromised people, which thankfully I'm not, but not a hundred percent. It can actually lead to hyperinfection and you can die from it. Um, so I was put on a anti-parasitic called ivermectin. Um, and what was interesting about that was, um, I don't think that I mentioned this already. Um, I, I had what my Lyme doctor at the time was calling a an abdominal neuritis. The, um, I had previously had that stiffness that was all over my abdomen with the antibiotic treatment it got down to just being on my right side. I still have it, um, but it's much better than it was previously. The ivermectin is the first thing that actually touched this. Um, it, it, it brought so much relief. Um, so we were like, my, we being my family, um, and I were like, what, what's going on? It this anti, why, why did nobody check for this particular parasite before? And why, why is nobody talking about ivermectin? So Paula, I want to share with everybody that Rich and I had no idea that parasites played a role in a Lyme journey. So you brought it to our attention probably, oh my goodness, nine months ago now. Yeah. And you put it on our radar. And then we followed up with people like Kristen Nanos, who shared her struggle with parasites in Lyme. And then some famous doctors like Dr. Biarascano and Dr. McDonald who really talked to us about the important role that parasites play in mm -hmm. getting better from Lyme disease. So I want to encourage everybody listening to explore the role of parasites with their doctors as a potential contributing factor to their chronic illness. Um, it's definitely something that should be looked at. And now in your case, you're treating these parasites with ivermectin and you're feeling even better, right? So talk to us more about that and what that was like. Oh, it was, it was great. Um, but it, it was also like, why, why is nobody really evaluating this or, or, or not evaluating, but, but why aren't more doctors 
looking into this, I think the issue with um, strong alloides is that a lot of physicians are not necessarily looking for it because if you go online and Google it, um, it's predominantly, at, at least they claim, it's predominantly seen in um, subtropic areas. Um, you know, I was being asked, have you, have you ever traveled to Africa? Have you ever been to, no, I, I'm from New Jersey. I went to Canada and Italy, like, no. Um, but I, I think that the medical profession isn't taking into account that people travel, animals can migrate, um, things can be brought over, especially if you have an infected person who um, inadvertently is, I should mention this, it's possible, but it's not, um, I don't think it's very common for people to pass it to other people, but it, it is from what I've read online, again, not a medical professional, just doing my own research, um, it, it is possible for an infected person to pass it onto another infected person through certain body um, bodily secretions. Um, but if, if you're not taking these things into account, you're not looking for it, how are we gonna know how many people truly um, are infected with something like this? It, it, how, how many people are walking around not knowing that they have a parasite like this and they're, because they haven't traveled somewhere, they're, they're not being treated for it. So this is a hard question, but can you know why having parasites like the strongoloids that you had are make it so much harder to overcome something like Lyme disease? What is the interaction between the parasite and the Lyme bacteria that was keeping you sick? Sure. So again, I'm not a medical professional. Everything that I'm saying in regards to this is just through my own research, Google doctor, you know, it's it just, it's just through research. Um, but from what I've read, it seems like Lyme disease and parasites are very symbiotic. Um, they're like doc, Dr. McDonald's, I have my, I have my little notes, um, but I, you know, I listened to the, uh, Dr. McDonald's podcast, um, but his research, I, I pulled it up. He had, um, and I don't, I can't recall if he discusses on the podcast with you guys, but he, he had seen nematode worms in Borrelia. Why isn't that being discussed more? And then there's another, there's a, a woman, um, PhD, Dr. Eva Sapi, who I believe she's at the University of New Haven, New, New Haven. She's a researcher who examined the guts of ticks and I think they were ticks in Connecticut and 22% of the nymphs and 30% of adults carried nematodes. So if they're there, why isn't more research being done or why aren't, or why aren't medical professionals looking more closely at whether or not these are, um, things that can further infect people and further delay um, recovery of people. And so much so where in the article that you sent us, again, probably nine months ago, and I couldn't appreciate it, and Rich and I were talking about just this week, mm -hmm. that it it's specifically mentions that these filarial worms, which are parasites, are in ticks. And yeah. they've been proven to be in deer ticks, yeah. as well as the Lone Star ticks, yeah. and can be spit into humans. So yeah. you can get parasites from humans. You can, uh, I'm sorry, you can get parasites from t a tick bite. You can get I mean, parasites. You can get from, parasites from you. <laughs> you can. I guess that is true, right? <laughs> it's really possible. So you can get parasites in a wide variety of ways, but you also hit on another part that these these parasites are symbiotic with the Lyme bacteria, meaning that when they're finding these biofilms, 
they have parasites inside of the biofilms and inside of these parasites are the Lyme bacteria. So the Lyme bacteria is like triple insulated by the biofilm and the parasite, which makes it even harder to treat the Lyme disease. So there's a really important role there that has to be looked at with parasites and, and Lyme. And, and I think we're starting to really get there in the Lyme community. So yeah. I do want to go back now to your, your story. So now you're feeling even better on the ivermectin. Yeah. So this was right before COVID hit, I believe, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, ironically. Yeah. Yeah. So you're getting your life back. You're starting to get out there. Now you're, you're basically locked down. Again. Back in the house. So you're only back in the time, house. Only this time, everybody's in the house with me. <laughs> so it's very different. So what, what goes through what that was like? Did you do anything else treatment wise? Did you continue on? Were you still on Doxy? You know, where was your health at and what were you doing to treat at this time? Yeah. So um, again, um, you know, I, I don't want it to seem that I don't want to come across as if, you know, I'm cured or I still have issues. I still have, um, my, my right flank pain. I still have GI issues. Um, but I'm much better than I was when I was at my worst. Um, so I, I continued on doxycycline, um, and also with ivermectin, which I'm also still, um, incorporating in my treatment, um, at least once a week, um, which, I, I think it's been a huge help. Um, I know that it's been in the news lately and there's some um, discussions going on in regards to, to COVID and whatnot, but not, not to politicize it or anything, just in, in, for me specifically in regards to my issues, it's been very helpful. Um, and it's said to be, um, from what I've read again, um, a generally safe um, uh, medication. Um, so I, I am still on my doxycycline. Um, and the ivermectin uh, once a week. Um, I'm trying to find out how I can uh, test for the strongoloides again to make sure if it, if it was, which it seems to be in my case, if it was a, a true positive test result, um, that um, additional testing isn't necessarily a false positive because again, it's the, it's an IgG test. There's, uh, you know, there, if I have antibodies can come back positive. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to go about doing that. Um, but I did do something really stupid. Um, I was just over the antibiotics and I decided to, uh, be my own Guinea pig and I went off of my antibiotics for probably a month, a, a month and a couple of weeks. And all of my symptoms started coming back. Um, so I, I, I'm back on doxycycline now, but I, I'm kicking myself because you almost get to this, um, it, it's like a false sense of security almost where you're like, okay, I'm bad. I don't need, I don't need this. Um, but I, in my case I did, um, but you can't stay on antibiotics forever. So I'm actually in the process of, um, working with an herbalist to try some herbal protocols that might be, um, just as helpful or maybe more helpful than the antibiotics, or if I can incorporate them with the antibiotics at this point in time. And I'm also, um, looking into working with a homeopath. Um, my Lyme doctor had recommended a, a homeopath, um, that he, he trusts and, and thinks is um, very uh, reputable. So I'm, I'm going to be speaking with her in the not too distant uh, future to see if, if that helps at all as well. So, so Paolo, one of the things that we've learned is to not be so hard on yourself. So I, I sense that you were 
when you describe how you went off antibiotics, you were just very disappointed in yourself for doing that. But don't be. I mean, look, we, you, you, went to, <laughs> you, you, you literally went to hell and back. So you, you've made major progress. And one of the things we want to encourage you to do that actually I am now taking and Rich is now taking is the, the Restore Kit Herbal Protocol by Dr. Rawls, which is built okay. off of the, um, the Buna Protocol, which has mm-hmm. worked well for us and, and many of our other followers. And the other thing I wanted to point out, you mentioned that you weren't sure how to test if these parasites were gone and how to really prove, you know, with these antibody tests, if they're gone. Uh, Dr. McDonald, who is, as we call the doctor's doctor, who does all these tests that are better than what we can get done through our, our traditional labs, he has guided us and some of our followers who have reached out to us for, for guidance that, mm-hmm. the, believe it or not, the CDC, despite the fact that they may not be the best with Lyme and chronic Lyme, they do have better testing than, than any lab. And you can actually encourage your doctor to reach out to the CDC. Mm-hmm. He can send samples to the CDC and they will run tests with better technology than any doctor has mm-hmm. to actually examine your blood and various samples to see if the DNA is still present of these, of these parasites. Mm-hmm. So I know it's a hard concept to really want to take advantage of, but it's free. There's no cost. That's part of what the CDC is there for, to test for these special types of hard cases to identify. Yeah. So we encourage you and everybody else to take advantage of that free service through your doctor to, to get these tests done that aren't possible without the CDC's involvement. Yeah. Um, and the final question I want to ask you before I hand this back over to Rich is the ivermectin. So one of the things Dr. McDonald shared with us also is if you suspect parasites, you really should go on an antiparasitic protocol. And he yeah. mentioned that a lot of these antiparasitic protocols aren't really that bad. You don't have side effects. And even if you're not sure, they really don't have many negative effects for you. So from your standpoint, do you have any side effects from the ivermectin? Is there anything that's doing this that you feel is harmful to you? Or do you think that's something that's a low risk protocol somebody can try if they suspect parasites? So again, I, I'm not a medical professional. Um, this is not medical advice, just in, in my case specifically. Um, I found it ivermectin to be very helpful. I still find it to be very helpful. Um, I, I feel that when I take it, um, I do notice some alleviation of certain symptoms, including, um, in my case, the um, uh, what, what has been termed an abdominal neuritis on my right side. Um, in regards to side effects, I might have had some slight herxing, um, like a like a migraine, or but but nothing crazy. I mean, I when I was on antibiotics, I had herxing that was much much more severe than than this. So, you know, again, everybody's different. Everybody has different reactions to different medications or different allergies. Um, that's the lawyer in me speaking, but, um, in my case, um, thankfully, uh, I tolerated it well. I still tolerate it well. Um, and it, it has been helpful. So Paula, as Matt had said, you've been to hell and back, and, uh, I know you would never wish this on your enemy, but it hasn't been all bad. So why don't you talk to us about what the beautiful elements of this journey have been and what you've learned about yourself, both personally and professionally, that leads you to believe you're going to be a better person and a better lawyer as a result of going on this journey. Sure, so I, I think that at least one of the positives is that it, it's, it's woken me up to, to what Lyme disease and Lyme co-infections really can do to your body um, and uh, that, you know, if, if I hear somebody who's going through something similar to me, I'm, I'm going to tell them, um, I really think that you should investigate this. If all of your tests are coming back normal um, and you, you're feeling sicker and sicker and, and the doctors that you're seeing can't explain it, it may be worth your time to, to look into this because you don't want to get sick as, as I did or, or somebody else who, who went long-term 
um, without um, diagnosis or treatment. Um, I think another thing that this has taught me uh, is that I'm a lot stronger than I thought I was. You know, it's I don't I don't like to toot my own horn, um, but it you go you go through law school, you think you think okay, I, I survived law school, I could survive anything. No, you go through Lyme disease and co-infections, you can survive anything. You know, it's the bar exam wasn't so bad after going through Lyme disease, <laughs> but um, that. that that, that essentially, the what, what the saying where there's a will, there's a way. I think it's really important um, to anybody that may be listening that has lost hope like I did, um, that thinks that they really are going to die, um, that it's important to just keep putting one foot in front of the other as difficult as it may be. Um, and that if this is something that you suspect or somebody has told you to look into, it may really be worth your time um, looking into it further with somebody who is truly knowledgeable about this. Um, and you know, if you if you are so unwell that you're unable to advocate for yourself, try and get somebody involved, whether it's a family member, a friend, um, an attorney, um, to 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 help you to advocate for yourself so that you don't just keep getting pushed aside or being told that it's all in your head or that, you know, that there's nothing wrong with you. Um, because mm -hmm. you, you need to, you need to listen to your, your body. Um, and you, you need to listen to your gut and, you know, just you, you at the end of the day, you, you are your own advocate. Even if you can't advocate for yourself, you can get somebody involved to try and assist you in, in getting help and being heard. So now let me ask you the final Tick Boot Camp question that we ask every one of our guests. So if, uh, God forbid, your mom after this podcast came walking into the room that you're sitting in and she had a tick biting on her, on her arm, yeah. what would you recommend that you do so she wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? Sure. So, um, my advice would be, um, number one, to um, make sure if you are removing the tick, do not put anything on top of the tick. Any, I know a lot of people are, there's there's a lot of videos and, and misinformation going around that um, certain oils or essential oils, olive oil, whatever, put it on the tick, the tick will let go and then you don't even have to worry about using a tweezers please do not do that because evidence shows that the tick can regurgitate and you can actually up your chances um, in um, contracting Lyme or co-infections. But um, that aside, um, I would urge her and probably assist her in removing the tick with a tweezer or I think that there's something like a, a tick, um, is it called a, a, a tick? chain or so there's, there's some type of tick removal device that I've seen that is um, supposed to be helpful um, in actually getting all of the tick, including the head out. Um, and I would um, contact the primary care physician, tell them that um, a, a tick had bitten um, or been found on the skin, ask if it's possible to get um, a prophylactic dose of antibiotic treatment to try and avoid um, infection. Um, I would also take the tick and have it for what it's worth um, uh, tested. Uh, there's a lot of places that will test ticks using PCR testing. Again, could it be flawed? 
sure, but it, you know, it's, it's just another precaution that, that may be helpful. Um, I know um, I've had ticks sent because I have found ticks on my dog um, to, uh, I think it's East, Str East Stroudsburg University, ESU. They have a tick lab. I think that there's another one at Stony Brook. There's a bunch of places, just if you look in your local area um, and you, you type in, you know, labs that will evaluate um, um, ticks for Lyme and co-infections, because it's important to look at both, um, that, that would also be huge. Um, that those are the big things that I would do. Um, but it, you know, even if it's on you, I, I think that there has been research indicating that certain, certain co-infections or certain ticks can even just spread illnesses through just being on you. Um, obviously not all, but some. So even if you see one on you and it hasn't bitten you, it's still worth having it evaluated. It's still worth talking to your doctor about it. Um, this is something that you really can't be too careful with. And Again, if you're lucky enough to see one, it definitely it's it's also a huge it's a huge uh, point in your favor. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest Paula Leichter. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Ms. Leichter, please visit our Instagram page at Lady Gertie. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer to us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.